All right, good to see everyone this evening. We're rapidly walking through our our study, and so let me open a word of prayer and do a few intro things this evening before we we pass out some notes for for the next next session. So, Father, we are thankful that we have time this evening. We take time out of our schedules to contemplate Your truth, and Lord, and even in this missional task to know how to be better equipped, to be better prepared, to answer the call that you've given to us, and to do so, Lord, with with joy and with gladness. Lord, I thank you, Lord. As we look around the world that has fallen apart, we, we look at, we see the urgency of the task. We also see the power of the gospel to transform lives. And so I'm, I'm grateful, Lord, that we're able to to look through this and I just pray for your hand of blessing on our time this evening, Lord, in your name we pray, amen. I'd like to, to do a couple of things. We're gonna, I want to introduce a couple of books, run through, we covered last time, we ran through pretty quickly last time, some of, some of our notes, I want to just highlight a few things there, then give you, give you some notes for, for this evening. One thing I would like to just, Pastor I was saying we're covering we're covering a lot of ground. We do cover a lot of ground. When you first hit the top, the topic a little bit superficially, it's like, well, you know, can how can you teach ten times on on the one subject until you start digging into the weeds of it? And really, my desire is is to to help us think through critically, but critically in a healthy way. I don't mean to be critical of, but to think through critically missions, so that when you're seeing things and hearing things, it will resonate and it'll help us to process these questions in a, in a healthy biblical way and really it's not because it, we're not going to be able to have a uh, a guideline for every possible scenario is to try to lay biblical foundation and principles that okay now here comes this ministry how do i process this in a healthy way and how do i uh see this need from a biblical perspective what questions should i be asking what should i be looking for and those are some of the things that that will be healthy and some of you that are on, on the lu campus i mean the issue of missions Obviously, is all over the place, so this is a, a healthy place to, to try to think through some of these things in a biblical fashion. I want to just introduce a couple books. One, this is probably the, the introductory book. If you're going to do a, a small book on missions, Nine Marks has one on missions called How the Local Church Goes Global. It's a very simple book. It's probably the first book that I would give out to anyone who wants just an introduction, an introduction to missions, uh, biblical missions, and he does a great job here. Very concise, very helpful, very, very constructive. Sometimes, as I talk about being discerning, um, here's a book that, on missions called Beyond the Local Church. So as the title indicates, he advocates for, fun- for working outside the church. I tell you, when I read it, I wasn't, sometimes I was kind of grieved. Other times I was almost, I mean, I was grieved at the things he was saying. And it's a reaction to, when you look at his experience, what happened is simply like many people he had some negative experiences with churches, so he, he writes a book on how we shouldn't let the church hold us back in ministry, and he, he describes missions outside the church. And unfortunately, you catch a few clues in the first part of his book that describes his negative experience, kind of like you when you witness somebody uh, been in the church full of hypocrites, and that's how he responds to missions in that way. It's not, not helpful and not, not constructive. Here's one statement he made that, and actually he quotes somebody else. He quotes, he quotes George Lynx. Talk about the future of the church and the importance of it. Look at this one statement he quotes here, and he quotes at the beginning of a chapter. He goes, There's little point in breeding tigers if you intend to keep them chained up in dog kennels. You know what he's talking about? Talking about raising missionaries, he, he described as apostles to serve in missions. What's the point of breeding tigers if going to get them, keep them chained up in what? Dog kennels. Who's a dog kennel? It's a church. And I read that and I'm like, wow. What what a what a this is this is where when frustrations from your personal experience leads to poor breeds not just poor theology, because it's not theology he's writing about. But how that anger and bitterness towards what he experienced breeds that kind of response, those kind of quotes. 
the shame. But that's, you know, that's things you have to be careful for because you read this from an honest way. Wow, this is fantastic. You know, missions is powerful and strong, but don't let the church hold you back. And, and what, how, how grieving it is for him to write this way about missions. Roland Allen is a great author, very thought-provoking. Now, none of these books, you can say, well, do you, I don't endorse everything they say. He's a turn-of-the-century uh, author. He served in Africa from the late 1800s to the, this book was written in 1912. And uh, what he does, I think, is really challenging. He's a, he's a turn-of-the-century, has a very critical view of missions already in Africa. He says, why are we creating dependent on the Western missionary ministries? Turn of the century. Still some of the problem we still experience today, but he's very he's he's you know, he's pretty radical in his thinking. He talks about one of the one of the signs of a successful mission work is a missionary does not stay a long time in that work. He encourages them to move on quickly and he talks about Paul. What does Paul teach? Why did Paul move on so quickly? He explains why in his view. So uh, very helpful, but um, again, you have to read with a broader critical mind. Culver does a good job, a great commission, a theology for world mission. So basically what he takes is the great commission. He says it doesn't start in Matthew Matthew 28, which we know, of course. He goes back and and does a great job just um, unfolding scripture from Matthew 10, Matthew 13, then Romans 10, Romans 15. Walks through, he says, from the moment the the apostles were called, the mission mandate began there. And so he kind of unfolds that. From time to time, he jumps over and makes just very broad mission statements that kind of falls back in the rut of, of a very broad mission statements, and that's kind of inevitable. I mentioned to you in the beginning, a lot of these authors, they, uh, you always have this, this, this mission, this canvas behind, this big mission theology canvas, and they, they hit back sometimes on those big themes about the church, and it goes back to, well, basically, the church is this, but, but, and you kind of walk over here. So, but a great book. I think he, did, he does a great job, one of the best in terms of just unfolding the Great Commission. Other journals, Nine Marks has a journal, a different author. Different authors, you can see some of these articles are, are helpful. They're from a missional perspective. Different authors. One article here says, Why your bad ecclesiology is hurting us, writing from the field. So you're sending people to us with bad ecclesiology and it's hurting us on the field. Why? Yeah, because you don't understand the church here, and you're going over there helping start churches, and you don't understand the church, and you're doing us a disservice. Please don't send them. And he talks about some of that. Stop sending missionaries. A little thought-provoking, obviously, in the mission manual, right? Why more isn't always better. I talked to one missionary in China once. He says, you know, half the missionaries here should go home. <laughs> you know, so our, our view sometimes just sent, and it goes back to, Having sometimes a view that's a non-critical view of what we're doing, let's just send. We're not thinking about why, what we're doing, what's the ultimate goal, what's the objective, and we're just we're just sending. And a lot of resources are doing that. He says, "Stop sending missionaries. Why more isn't always always better." So a couple of few other articles here that I, I found were were helpful and and thought provoking. So some good things. So reading is good. There's a lot of books out there on missions. Most, you know, you're going to find you got to find out who's writing the books. If it's a missionary, missionary is usually instructing the church on how they should do things better. If it's from a church perspective, they're either challenging the church to do certain things, or they're they're trying to re, they're trying to reframe missions in a biblical way. But a lot of a lot of good things to read. But be one of the things I hope we have here is kind of just tools to think through uh, missions in a in a constructive way. So Nathan, give me. Give me a hand. Yeah, I think there's. I don't know how many people we have. Do you mind giving those out? There should be around 40 copies, which is roughly what we should have here. So let me. I'm going to. Let's give, as you're getting those notes, just give a. A sweep, a canvas sweep of where we were last time. Because we covered a lot of ground last time, the last two times, on beginning with the Great, Great Commission. And why chapter 3, and we'll be completing normally, ch- completing chapter 3 today on why the church, or the church as an agent of, of the Great, Great Commission. 
we've been building on, you know, the, the whole point is kind of building systematically one as God's unique revelation is passed on down to man, passing down to the apostles, who then forms a church and passes down the church. We as a church are recipients of God's revelation. And then from there, we're tasked with uh, carrying that truth. We're tasked with, uh, we, we view that in chapter 2. We're tasked with guarding the truth. The, tr- the church is a pillar of truth and proclaiming the truth. Chapter 3 with the Great Commission, we're sending truth, and we're tasked then with sending that truth to the, to the othermost. Other we saw the, the Great Commission in chapter 3. We saw the Great Commission is, we see it as one command, making disciples, with three adverbial supports, as you go, uh, as you baptize, and as you teach, make disciples. Now, the reason why that's repeated is because as we're coming through the more practical aspects of what missions look like, we're keeping in view making disciples is the ultimate objective and goal of where we're heading with the Great Commission. So everything we're going to do afterwards is going to be interpreted and filtered through that one understanding of the Great Commission, regardless of what phase of missions or ministry we're, we're in. We define missions. Page 32, define missions as the intentionality of sending commissioned individuals beyond the boundaries of a local congregation to make disciples. So there's a, a brief understanding and definition of missions beyond the boundaries of our local congregation it could be across the country it could be across the world but ultimately ascending from uh the beyond our boundaries for the purpose of of making disciples we define missionary on page 35 define missionary uh where it says there um comes from obviously the idea of being sent if there's a someone sent then there's a sender. That's part of the principles we're looking for. One of the key pieces, I say, you'll ask somebody first thing, I want to be a missionary, so who's sending you? You'll see the, that, that, will, that will stump half the people that want to be involved in missions is who's sending you, uh, especially if you try to link it to any, any church involvement. So to send off on a commission or on a mission. So a missionary is someone then that is sent uh, on a mission. Uh, we answer the question, is everyone a missionary? Uh, we, we view the fact that on page 35 we should all be lights in the world, but we're not all missionaries in the proper definition of the term. Uh, Romans 10.15 that we'll look at perhaps a little bit later on uh, this evening, it talks about you know, how can anyone preach unless they are sent. Well, when you say in Romans 10.15, how can they preach unless they be sent? It implies two things. It implies someone going and it implies someone sending. And so uh, that necessitates... Uh, the understanding that we're not all missionaries, but we're all, of course, called to be lights into the world. We tackled the question, if you're going to be a missionary, how do you know if you're called? Uh, page 37, we address the question of the calling. That's a, a, a big question about what I'm called to. What, is, what does a calling look like? A lot of people, when they talk about a spiritual calling, they, they use that to kind of define, hey, I'm called to do something. The Lord has told me. The Lord has directed me. The Lord has laid in my heart. When you use that kind of terminology, usually it's used to kind of disarm, minimize, to tell you what the Lord, you know, I'm not going to argue with the Lord. So if you're telling me the Lord's told you this, uh, you, kind of, you kind of end the conversation because uh, it's kind of a way of, of, um, of, of keeping it from being challenged. So there's some practical guidelines of what it means to, to be called. And we define calling on page 37. A call is the inner desire given by the Holy Spirit through the word of God and confirmed by the community of Christ. We talked about the role of the church in that as well. And then just one definition of a reminder of on page 37. He says an individual can express his willingness while others must determine his worthiness. And the individual may be free to go, but only his church knows if he is fit to go. So, yes, an individual may be free, but is he fit? The church is tasked with with that question. From there, we ask the question, well, who sins? We talked a little bit about the, the mission-critical aspect. Well, who sins? Who's responsible for sending? Once you've answered that question, you're going to determine the course of action of that missionary involvement, right? Who's responsible for sending? Who lays hands on them? Who affirms them? Who makes sure that they're equipped and qualified is going to then determine what the purpose of the mission should be. And so... We talk about uh, who sins and the response that we have, the response that we have to, to do so. We talked about the difference between a parachurch organization versus, versus a paramissions organization. And the reason why I make that distinction is because there are many people involved in, in ministry areas that are not missional areas. 
and there are a lot of great things about being involved in ministry, serving, helping the needy and the poor, and et cetera. Uh, but we make a distinction with missions. Uh, if you don't make that distinction, then everything kind of gets blurred into the same mass of, of ministry. And there's there's ministries, a lot of good things. Okay, but what? And the pastor here a lot of times says there's things that we should, that we can do, but what must we do? Missions is what we're called to do. Any ministry we're involved in can be above and beyond that, but we have to be doing missions, and we should be involved in missions. So we, we spent some time making those kind of distinctions. Uh, page 39, we define missions. Uh, I, I, I put down Robert Hampshire's de- definition. He said ministry is about giving of ourselves and our time, talents, and resources. Not mis- I'm sorry, not definition of ministry, but definition of I'm sorry, definition of ministry here. Ministry is about giving of ourselves, our time, talent, resources to bless others. The cry of the minister is someone's got to do it, it might as well be me. So that's the person whose desire is to be involved in ministry. And you, listen, you might be have a desire for uh, one ministry or another, and the Lord leads you that way. And it might be a ministry that, that offers, uh, you can do that for a living. They, they, they pay a salary, and you could be involved in that. That's fantastic. That's a beautiful thing. But uh, that's not in and of itself sufficient just to call itself missions. So you might want to go overseas. You might have, hey, I would desire to go uh, live, uh, just talk to uh, someone who wants to go to, to Japan and teach English in Japan. It's fantastic. Is it missions? Well, if it meets the other criteria of missions, it can be, but just in and of itself, uh, it answers a desire to serve. And again, that's a great thing, but we need to make some of those, those distinctions if we're going to make sure that we're doing due diligence in regards to to missions. So with that, let's go ahead and go to... Romans ten fourteen. I mentioned it just a little bit earlier. And then we'll pick up from there we'll pick up on and this is what this is the passage we ended on, page forty one and forty two last time. Simply as a as a reminder. Romans ten verse fourteen. And this fits into, you know, we talked about last time about biblical sending is the church gave examples of when the church sent Barnabas and Antioch. We would see, we saw biblical examples where the term apostles being used without referring to the 12 apostles. We saw other times where the term apostle is simply translated messenger. So the church serves that purpose of, of sending messengers for the purpose that is one that uh, was um, directed by the church. In Romans 10, 14, 17, a familiar t- passage to us, right? It says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how uh, are they to believe in whom they have not never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? It goes back to one of the responsibilities, right? The obligation of the, of the church is the proclamation of truth. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Uh, but they have not all obeyed, obeyed the gospel. So simply, the, the, the picture, uh, page 42 from last time, or last page, how beautiful are the feet, sets an entire chain of events in motion. Uh, the, the context here is that of, of human responsibility to, to go and to carry the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, indicative of the fact that it's not simple, simply an idea of, of waiting for a, a divine calling without God instituting that in the church and sending and fulfilling that purpose. So all that under that first part of, of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Great Commission, as you go, has a lot of implications how you understand that going and who's responsible for doing that and who is the, um, the one responsible and the thrust, the thrust behind that. So the second aspect of the Great Commission is that of baptizing. We talked about baptizing earlier on in, in the idea of, of uh, guarding truth. Those who enter the church, baptizing is identifying yourself with the body of believers. It's, uh, baptism is a confession. That's why we have baptism uh, at a point in your life where the individual can give a testimony of his faith. They can testify it's important that at baptism one be able to express his faith. If you're not able to express your faith, you're not ready to be baptized. It's as simple as that because the intent is public declaration. 
public identification with a body of other professing believers professing the same Christ. So baptism is, isn't just um, an isolated incident or isolated uh, event. It's one that brings together a body of believers. So right away, in that proclamation I put down in page 42, there are two assumptions made in, in Matthew 28. You, would, you could almost expect to see Matthew 28 say, go, go, and preach the gospel and get people saved and baptize them. It doesn't say that. It says what? It says, go and baptize. Why is that? Why, why are there other pieces not there? I, I simply wrote down that there's an assumption there. There's an assumption that as you go, God's going to do what? God's going to save souls. He never sends you out to go save. He sends you out to go proclaim. As you go and proclaim, he will do the saving. He's not sending me out there to go do the saving. Now, as, as a nuance, as that might seem, might seem like a simple shade of, of, of a distinction there, but it makes a radical difference when you go serve on the field and you feel the pressure of my job is to get these people saved. As opposed to my job is to proclaim the gospel. There's, there's, it might seem like a slight difference, but when you're in the ins and outs of ministry and you're laboring at the task and you don't see people get saved but you're faithful to proclaiming the truth, you get discouraged because when people are not coming to the Lord, that wasn't your responsibility to make sure that they are convicted of sin and get saved. You are faithful in proclaiming the truth. That's why you're sent. God will be faithful in gathering people to himself. So as, as, as a detail as that might seem, in the grand scheme of, th- of things, it, it has some greater ramifications. So we're to go, the assumption that uh, as they're going, there's preaching the gospel and God will draw people to, to himself. And these two assumptions lead to the command to go and baptize new converts. New converts, uh, page 43, are called to what? To call to gather as a, as a visible body. Baptism is indicative of, of a number of things. One, it's indicative of them professing Christ. And it's indicative of them identifying with a body of believers. So immediately, there is a, a gathering that takes place. Now, I understand we could, we could see the gathering as a very structured where, you know, de- de- depending on your spiritual or your... Your church history, the older a church history, the more complex your church develops. That's just the nature of man. We go from the simple to the complex. Our bylaws get a little thicker. Uh, our guidelines get a little more complex. You know why? Because with experience, with time, you kind of add to that. We uh, we had a first camp out with our high schoolers. Yes, a Friday night. And uh, after that camp out, I made a checklist of all the things to do next time. Uh, and do things differently. Uh, Jacob was running point on that, and he told the kids to go grab a box of toilet paper because we we rented. You know, we did this proper. We rented the porta potty out there, so they weren't too crazy out there. But they came back with three boxes of those commercial roll, you know, <laughs> toilet paper. I'm like. You guys just raid the closet? I mean, you've got, I think there's like four rolls or six rolls per box, maybe eight rolls per box. I've got, what, 32, 32 massive and for one night or out in the woods. <laughs> like, guys, either we're serving something crazy for dinner or we're going to keep in the woods. But this, I mean, it's like we don't need but one roll. Anyway, it, the the. Man's nature is as he – I say that because when you go into a mission field that's still – where the gospel is still new, where the gospel has spread only in the past 10, 20, 30 years, they're going to have a, a different level of understanding where the church is at. As with our history, of course, we have a different understanding. But what I mean church is a – in its very basic form is a gathering of believers. We agree. We gather on the basis of our faith in Christ. That's the most – basic and it could be in a, it'll be in a living room it'll be in a basement it'll be in a garage it'll be in caves it'll be whatever it is it doesn't have to be structured in a sense that we sign on the dotted line of who we belong to or doctrinal statements the first uh the first work i helped get established didn't have a doctrinal statement so we helped them walk through what are, what are the core beliefs that we should agree upon when we gather and some people say oh do we need membership do we need it doesn't matter because one it's not a matter of membership in a academic way is do we agree what truths do we agree upon 
So when they gather, they profess Christ and, it's very, and they're baptized, and, it re, and it's indicative of that recognition that, hey, I'm professing Christ before this body of believers and before the world and, and joining hands with, with the body of believers. We see that systematically pictured in Scripture. I, I put two references here in Acts 2 and Acts 11 as Acts eleven nineteen verse 20, it says, A great many were added to the Lord. Verse 26, a church is established and disciples are being formed. So we see that systematically in, in Scripture, especially in the book of Acts, pictured there for us. So two things about that. One, church planning is a, is a missional model. And I put a number of quotes here just to give you other, other authors' perspective on the question. Paul's missionary journeys are an example of the inseparable role of church planning and missions. So why is this significant? Well, whenever we as a church are involved in missions and we want to invest in missions, we want to assist someone in sending them, we want to know how is this going to assist in, in establishing a, a gathering of believers that can um, be gathered in truth and how can a church be established. So look at some of these quotes I, I put down here. Just as, as, as support and, and kind of get an other author's perspective on the question, McKinley writes, when we're talking about Christian missions, we ought to be talking about doing the things that lead to the formation of churches. Hasselgrave, which is classic, only organizations that support evangelism and church planning in a significant way should be thought of as missions. Pretty, pretty strong. And that, that's why previously I wanted to distinguish between ministry and missions. Because, again, many good ministries, but if we're going to be invested in missions, we need to understand what the end purpose of it is and the church being the church. Eric Wright says, missions is church planning. Edward Smither writes, the visible expression of Christian mission was the church. Donald McGavron says, missions is an enterprise devoted to proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and to persuading men to become his disciples and dependable members of his church. Greg Ott, Gene Wilson suggests that missions must be considered incomplete whether or not churches being planted. Pretty strong, strong affirmation when saying the missions is completed when a church is being established, when a body of believers are being gathered and they're growing in knowledge and truth for the purpose of becoming disciples of Christ. You're forming disciples. Interesting in the order of the Great Commission, I find always find this interesting is that, and I think I write this a little bit later in the notes, is that Paul forms them, gathers them for the sake of teaching them and making disciples. We sometimes want to do that the other way around. We want to make we want to teach them so they would form into a body of believers. We have that, I think, backwards. You're really bringing them together as a body of believers and then teaching them because that's the context in which they are taught. So when missions are done backwards that way, what happens is that you keep a church in a very infancy stage, and we'll address some of the questions that keeps churches immature on the field because of, 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 of their own approach or a wrong priority. Uh, top page 44, Peter Wagner, Wagner says, the single most effective evangelistic methodology under heaven is planting new churches. So I think you could understand one thing is that as we as we're involved, as we as, as Timberlake Church, our investment in missions, what, what do I want to know? I want to know, how does this help establish churches? How does this grow the church, strengthen the church, build the church, establish the church, feed the church spiritually? You know, we, we want to know how does the end purpose has to be, must be in missions, how does this funnel back to the church? If it doesn't, then maybe it's a good ministry, maybe it's helpful, Building wells is, is helpful in an area where they need wells, but if it doesn't lead to helping churches establish themselves, then we've got a, an element missing that's crucial and that, that's critical. Second part of this is, is comes back to why the gathering through baptism, baptism is indicative of gathering believers together, identifying with Christ together, is one, I put down the second thing, is church planning is a gospel model meaning that individuals are recipients of the gospel, but the community of believers model the gospel in ways individuals cannot. And conversion is inevitably communal, meaning the gospel cannot be separate from the body. 
okay, why am I laying this groundwork? Why am I insisting on this? Because if you go and try to proclaim the gospel and you do that separate from trying to gather believers into an assembled body of believers, you're, you're, you're missing. That's one word that's used here I like. It says, if you present it this way, missions which focuses on individual conversions but is not intentional about establishing churches will be presenting a truncated gospel. What's the word truncated mean? One that's, one that's cut short. So if you're, if, you, if you're going to go and you're zealous about the gospel and you just want to go and give out tracts and preach and street corners and you want to shout it from the rooftops about the gospel, but you're not intentional about how does that connect with a gathering in the body, you're going to be presenting a, a truncated gospel that you're cutting short from its intended purpose, which was to gather them. And if that's not intentional and in the genesis of what you're doing, you find yourself over here with a, with a, a product or a, the consequences – uh, over here, which is you're not you're not shaping and forming something that will last beyond your own work. But yeah, participation in the life of a local assembly is an essential ingredient of the gospel. The connection between the gospel and church life is not solely consequential. What does that mean? What I mean by consequential means it's not the consequence of salvation. It's not I'm saved, therefore, as in they're two separate entities. I get, it, it's kind of like our it's kind of like our our, our sanctification model, right? We, we get saved over here in a large revival meeting. Then the second decision is do I, do I join a church of like-minded and like-faith? Like, like, like there's two separate pieces. There were never intended to be two separate pieces. They're all part of one. So that has to be thought through and intentional in that process as you're involved in, in, in the work. He says two things here. That, uh, says, he says my notes. I guess I'm saying them, but... Um, it's easier to deflect on someone else. Um, it's not solely consequential, but um, integral and constitutive, which means it forms the part of and it's necessary to make the whole complete. The, the gathering of believers is necessary to complete, not to complete this. Obviously, folks, we're not saying it's complete the gospel as it pertains to salvation, but it's to complete uh, the gospel and their understanding of what it means to, in, in a broader definition of the, the gospel in, in our lives. While the proclamation of the gospel makes the gospel audible, Christians gathered will make the gospel visible. There's, a, there's a one book that's written on this I thought was very helpful. Actually, one chapter of it just talking about the early church. The early church was formed in where? They were formed in, in, in homes. And those homes became their, their social centers where people were coming and going. And so that gospel naturally mixed in and as people gathered, it, uh, their, their testimony uh, there became evidence to, to those around us here Today we have a much more closed-in environment in the church, of course, because we have we have our, our buildings, we have things done a little bit a little bit differently. So we talk about how more naturally that spread back in the in the early church days. But two things: the gospel authenticates. Uh, um, Christians gather will make the gospel visible. I remember talking to a lady who had gone to a Billy Graham crusade, as a matter of fact, and it was my English teacher in. Middle school. So my English teacher in middle school, now the French grade 20 out of 20, that's the grading scale. She never gave me 20. She says, if I give you 20, it means you're as smart as me. I can't do that. I says, all right. <laughs> so she always gave me a 19, just right below. She was so happy one day because she asked me a question about a translation of a word. I didn't know it. She was like so excited that she knew an English word that I didn't. So, the, of course, I had a witness to her. And she knew what I was doing and what my parents were doing at the time and everything. So one day she shared with me about, at the class, she went to Billy Graham Crusade. Billy Graham came through Paris. She was excited about it and had a spiritual experience. I said, well, it's fantastic. Now I don't know how my little middle school age, I was really thinking it through, but I says, well, you know, I invited her to come to church. Well, I don't need church. I found Jesus. I was like, Wow. Now, this is not a criticism of Billy Graham. That's, I'm just saying that, that somehow there, there, there's, there's a, a distinction. But there, there's a profession over here that's not brought to bear and brought evidence in them desiring to be gathered with other uh, believers. The beauty of the church is that it gathers people from all walks of life, bond together in Christ Jesus. So the gospel is evidenced by the unity of believers, and the gospel is evidenced in believers' worship. So even through sanctification and growth, just a necessity of, 
of of church life there's there's nothing uh beyond the gospel of course proclamation itself more powerful even when you live overseas in a in a uh, secular environment to have a few gathered believers the love they have for it you know it, just, it makes no sense to the world why they're gathered why are they wasting their sunday morning when they could be sleeping in this is the one day of the week we sleep in why are they why are they happy when they should be sad one lady got offended because she attended a funeral uh, of a believer and they were singing and praising the Lord. She got offended because we were, it was unbecoming to be happy at a, at, a, at a funeral. And we've gone to many Catholic funerals where you grieve because they have no hope and they're just hoping that he lived a good life so he doesn't spend a long time in purgatory. goes back to the how can liberty be promoted. We talked about it last time, the, the, the discrepancy there with that. And so I remember seeing ladies come knocking on the door in tears because they had a tragedy in their life. But they knew it wasn't just us. Can you ask your folks to pray? There was just this, the body of believers, God designed it in such a way that we're not um, bringing the body of Christ together and believers together is, is, is the power of the gospel made evident to the world that surrounds us. So they, they went and they baptized. They got saved and they gathered them uh, in, in very simple ways, but in very, very powerful ways. Down to number three, church planning is a permanent model. Writing through simply that we see the apostles went from a Christocentric to a churchocentric ministry. I mean, they went from, from obviously the 12 apostles following Christ to now the, the 12 apostles uh, training disciples and establishing, uh, establishing the church. And the fact that the world would now be reached through congregational means, through means of the body of Christ being equipped to go to the othermost parts of the earth. Top page 45, I put down that many claim in, to follow in Paul's missionary footstep, but they create nothing permanent in a church. I think when you're, one thing that um, you become more and more aware of in time as you grow perhaps a little bit older is simply the legacy you're leaving behind. I don't mean legacy as in where people remember me, but simply that I plant something that can grow on its own and produce the fruit that it needs to, to produce. And in missionary work, the necessity of that, Alan, that quote here on page 45 is the author of this book. He writes a second book on Africa and missions in Africa. This was, the, I think, the better of the two books he writes. But he says, here is his quote on page 45. He says, Paul did not gather congregations. He planted churches and only left that church once disciples were made. So two observations from that one, Paul being obedient to the Great Commission meant not simply being satisfied with converts, but with planted churches. The missional mandate of making disciples cannot be done without planting churches. As such, it becomes the standard for all mission work. Planting churches becomes the standard for all mission work. You're either sustaining the work, you're planting the work, you're assisting the work, you're training the work, but that becomes a standard for, for all mission work. So I did put this for, for our understanding. Every missionary will not be church planting per se, but every mission should serve the purpose of gathering, growing, and establishing the church. It is a task that lays the foundation to teach, and it is the completed task once disciples are made. So church planting, as you baptize and gather, and then the two other aspects of uh, the Great Commission is that of teaching and of that of making making disciples. Second one is simply uh, page 45E, as you teach. So as you go, baptize, teach. I mentioned this earlier in the notes a few weeks ago already that the one distinction with baptize and teach is that they're not two separate. It says baptize, teach. We could think of baptize and teach as two separate, uh, two separate things, but baptism is where they identify themselves with, with professing other, profess their faith before others and gather together as believers, and there they can be taught. It says missionaries go, the gospel is proclaimed, new converts are baptized, and are taught the whole counsel of God. They had the knowledge of the gospel already, obviously, since they trusted Christ. So this knowledge now is they grow in teaching. They grow in teaching towards what? To the full knowledge of Christ, towards what purpose? was the purpose of becoming disciples of Christ. 
So what does it mean to become disciples of Christ? It means to now follow Christ. Now they're, you know, now they, so you, you go and you train and you teach for the purpose of them being able to independently follow Christ without depending on you. So you're training them and you're teaching them the whole counsel of God. Now there, it'd be hard here. These are, these are, these are principles you're trying to, you're trying to lean on. These are tr- principles and pillars you're building on. Inevitably, if you're in a room full of missionaries, you're going to get, here's the number, here's a pushback you're going to get automatically. Well, what time does, you know, the time factor, this could take 20 years, this could take a lifetime, this could take 50 years. The point is, how are we intentional about, we're training them for the purpose of them being independent and following Christ as disciples. That's, that's the key piece. Now, there's a post piece as well. We can come in ministry afterwards and help a church or help a ministry beyond that. But we don't come in anymore as, as, as pastor missionaries who go in there as, as brothers and helping them and equip them. There's, there's another part of ministry that's possible there. But as we're teaching them, I put down that there's a, um, there's a sense where man never ceases to learn, of course. But the context of Matthew 28, Matthew speaks of teaching what is needed to arrive at the, matur- at the maturity of disciples in Christ. I think that's what Alan hits in his book. He says... The reason why Paul was so effective and so prompt in coming and going in his ministry, which means he never stayed more than two, three years in one place, is because he taught what was needed for them to follow Christ. He didn't teach every aspect of, of truth that there was to be taught. Sometimes, oh, maybe it's because they had all the Judaic foundations, so they already had certain... He debunks a lot of those questions and really just says, basically, he focused on what was necessary for these people to learn how to feed on the Word and to feed on the Word and then become... From there to be able to uh, follow Christ and uh, and lead on their own. So the objective, under the second point here, I put down as you teach. I said the objective is to see these new converts not be imitators of Western Christianity or adopt the missionaries' convictions, but be a disciple or pupil of Christ. You know, it's funny how you could put one thing in a phrase and think, well, how how does this? Of course. But you know, let me just tell you something. Here, let me give you a parallel to this or a parallel example. Parents, why, why are we raising our kids? Do we raise them so they would follow us the rest of their lives? Hopefully not. Hopefully not. <laughs> now some can hang around longer than desired. I mean, um, longer. <laughs> Some can still, you know, mooch on the parents, live in their basement for, for years on year, years on end, as long as they can still, you know, drain their Wi-Fi. Now, let me just tell you, my other daughter's not here, so that's good. But she, she's, a, she's a techie, so she learned how to split the Wi-Fi so she could feed off the Wi-Fi. It's like, wow, that's, that's dangerous when you get a, a girl that has techie savvy and split the Wi-Fi and drains it. But, but, you know, even though we know in our minds as parents, we know that we're raising our kids for the purpose of them doing what? You know, to walk on their own and follow Christ. And yet, as we're raising them, we have to be constantly reminded of that because what we're tempted to do as you raise kids. Do things for them. Do things, do things for them. We don't want them to suffer. So we don't want them to suffer. We want to step in and make sure they don't suffer. We, don't, we want to bless them. So they have, they're without something, we want to give it to them. <clears throat> We want them to be independent, and yet we don't want to let them go. Okay, well, all those feelings get processed in missions over and over and over and over again. Even though we should know, we should be reminded, the ultimate goal is for them to, to be independent and follow Christ, independent of me, but yet, because they're poor... I want to make sure that they're not so poor that they're hurting. Because they're lacking this, I want to make sure that they have that. And, and, and ultimately in doing that, we can cuddle them to the point where we forget, hey, I'm not training them for myself. One of the, the greatest challenges for parents is to remember you're raising your kids for the Lord, not for yourself. So it's not so much important that they follow my convictions, but they follow God's truth. It's not so important that you know, they do everything as I do it. What's important is that they do everything that God commands them to do. That's a whole different dynamic. And even though I know that as a parent, and they know that in missions, and yet they have a hard time breaking away from that because especially as Americans, you come in and you're wealthy. 
you're relatively wealthy. Inflation has made that a little bit more relative than, than it used to be. But you walk in there and you, you know, now Europe, you know, Europe, you're going to be middle class like everybody else. But, but for the most part of the world, South America, Africa, a lot of places in Asia, you're just, you're just wealthy. And even if you're not wealthy, you're wealthy. And it's hard to not want to meet every, every need, but if you're not careful, you, you forget the ultimate goal is for them to stand on their own two feet and know God can and God will provide for their own needs. And that's um, something that you're, you're teaching them towards that. So you're not teaching them you know, how, how to make sure that they do things the way I want them to do it. You know, how to make sure that when I leave, they know that, boy, this is wrong and this is right. And my coworker, in, um, one coworker I worked with for a couple, three years, when he taught a subject, he would, and there's different philosophies, he would spoon feed truth. What I mean by that is that he would teach on a subject and he would not give the impression there's any gray areas. So we taught on marriage and divorce. God hates divorce. Amen. That was point one, two, and three. Afterwards, I talked to him and says, hey, I mean, there's a little more to the counsel of God on this subject. Why didn't you broaden the... Well, I don't want them to be tempted to divorce. <laughs> so you... It's, so, it's, it's such a... It's a poor understanding of the ability of the Word of God to convict and allow them to... Because what's going to happen? They will understand that at some point. And they will discover that from some point. And instead of giving them the whole counsel of God in that way to help them make their own decision but to rely on the truth, you try to shape them in your image to have certain convictions, and that is always will always backfire. Um, and we do that with our, with our children as well when we're not careful, right? So I put down here this – so with these small phrases have, have, have a broad implication to some of these things. Put down – uh, when winning converts is the goal of missions instead of making disciples, then there's an easy rush to get conversions. Easy believism and nominal Christianity, and this has harmed churches by and large, but put down has harmed the missional church by embracing professing converts who did not count the cost of discipleship. And in doing so, the congregation has a weak foundation that keeps the church in an infancy stage. New converts were to be the foundation on which to build disciples. So when you walk in there and have a, out of a desire and zeal to proclaim the gospel, but you detach it from the cost of discipleship, and you detach it from the ultimate goal of being a disciple, therefore, but what you, what you do is you start creating a, a, a foundation, a weakened foundation that now you're trying to build on. Now you're trying, now you're trying to build a foundation on, on people that you, you kind of hit the cost come to Jesus, he loves you, you feel, you feel pain and misery in your sin, he'll relieve you of that. Come to Jesus because, you know, he'll, you, you present all this because you want to be appealing, you want to be accepted because you want and all these things, and you hide the cost of discipleship behind it, which means you hide the ultimate objective is to give up, carry your cross, and sacrifice it, and you hide that. Well, now you've got this, this, this little noyo, this little foundation piece you're trying to build on now in a church this size where you have 500 people come on Sunday morning you're going to get that but you also have people that have a foundation in truth but try to build a mission work on that and you've got 20, 30, 40 people and you built on that now you're looking for leaders you're looking for elder quality people you're looking for disciples and you find that people are like well wait a minute I talked to a lady once who's been some of the church for 7 years before I got there because she was going to party call group here she is, seven years into it. Says, well, this is what... One day she got frustrated. I shared this in Family Life once. Says, well, one day she got frustrated. Says, well, I just want to know. Because she, you know, her husband left her and different things and tragedies and, you know. Says, why is it always about God, God, God? That's all I hear about is God, God, God. How about me? <laughs> and it, if this is what it means to be a Christian, I just don't want... I'm, I'm done with it. I'm thinking, so where have you been the last seven years? Who's been, who's been t- why have people told you about the gospel? They're, they taught you that the gospel is about you, 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 and it wasn't about you. So in, in, in a very simple way, we build on things that then 10 years, 15 years down the road, we're trying to find, oh, I can't find leaders, can't find elders, right? Because one thing about the Apostle Paul that we see, I think, a little bit later is that he expected obedience. 
He expected obedience. So that wasn't, that wasn't, there's no confusion in the beginning about following and obeying Christ. And so, of course, we could have that in American Christianity too, right? This uh, nominal Christianity has harmed the church at large, not just in missions. A little paragraph here that followed up and down. Paul did not teach new converts at length so they could become a church. He went straight to establishing now I put church gatherings or church structures so that new converts could be taught. Now he goes straight to the baptism and gathering of believers for the purpose of being able to have an environment where they can be taught, not the other way around. Well, I'm going to have small, you know, I'm going to keep teaching, teaching until they see the the merits of the gathering. No, that's that's we gather and we from there, from there we lay that foundation to to teach. Teaching is is missional. I have one chapter here, and is that time accurate? Six or five, it is okay. So, I'll just say one thing about, mm, nah, I don't want to rush through that. A lot of, a lot of, here, here's things when I'm, when I'm teaching that, I'm not making assumptions, I'm trying to make, I'm trying to connect the dots, because when I'm making statements, and I try to support these statements, I'm, I, I know where they connect with ministry at large. That's, I want to make sure that we're giving ourselves tools to think Critically, or think biblically about about ministry, and all these all these statements have their purpose, and you can trace them back later on when you examine the ministry. You could, you could go back and, and trace um, trace it back to some of these missed, either missed or had like like parents have to be reminded all the time. You know, parenting is not a one and you know if you took the parenting class, you're done, you're good. No, it's it's continually be reminded of the need to. To, to, to train and them in a way they should go and ministry is, is the same way so next time we'll pick up here we'll finish this part on on making on making disciples and then uh, look at a little more of the application part two on, on how to, what's healthy missions strategic missions how, to, how does God's sovereignty play in the missions uh, and choosing the field to go to and um, what is a what does a healthy missionary look like and we'll, we'll, we'll walk through some of that as well. So let's close our time in, in a word of prayer. Father, we commit this to you. What a, what a joy it is to be faithful and, and, and being able to serve you, Lord. I, I pray because as, even as we've been looking over these principles now for a few weeks, that you would direct our hearts. Lord, I think Pastor Brody mentioned this the other day, just to, out of this group, would you, would you send one or two or three that would want to go from the midst of this church to go carry the gospel to uh, another location, Lord. And I see a church a gathering, believers gather for the sake of establishing a, a body of believers, Lord. Would you provide that, and would we as a church know how to uh, encourage them in that endeavor? We commit this to you, Lord, this evening. In your name we pray. Amen.